listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda. Join us each week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what is likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Suda, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. Over the last few weeks, we've seen an escalation in Russia's war against Ukraine, with the mobilisation of Russian reservists, more threatening language by Vladimir Putin, and success for Ukrainian troops who have claimed back some territories. This week on Global Truths, Keith and I are discussing where the war is at now. Now, Russia invaded back in February this year, eight months in, Keith. Would you say the conflict has gone how they would have hoped? No, it's a a defeat for Putin. As far as we can tell, Putin's got a a series of objectives. Obviously, one is to take control of Ukraine. The second one is to exert control over that giant Eurasian landmass of which Russia is the largest single component. But you've got a number of what we would call the stands in the southern part of Russia, which have become independent in the last 30 years with the breakup of the Soviet Union. He wants to have more influence there. And I think also was hoping to remind China that it is still a major player in world affairs. And all of this has gone badly for him. And most recently, of course, he's changed the rhetoric. It's no longer Russia versus Ukraine. It's Russia versus NATO, Russia versus the West. So I think that he's increased the war aims so as to also now take on the West. So if you look at the campaign to invade Ukraine, Ukraine is a huge landmass. It's one of the largest, geographically speaking, largest countries in Europe. And, of course, there's been an argument from some Russian specialists that Russia without Ukraine does not have an empire. And so it was natural that it would, if you're going to try to rebuild the empire, you need to start with Ukraine. So far, he's been able to take over about 15% of the country and about 5 million people. Overall, there's a population of in excess of 40 million. And this is the declaration that he made recently, claiming that some of the territories in eastern Ukraine are now parts of Russia. Ironically, as he was making that proclamation, some of his own troops were actually retreating from the area (laughs) that he was proclaiming as Russian soil. So, yes, the conflict has gone very badly. So in terms of raw numbers, he went into the battle with 180,000 troops, 120,000 of whom he sent into battle. So he kept 60,000 and the rest of Russia to remind the various nationalities as to whose side they're supposed to be on. The 120,000 have done badly. He has now decided to go on to a partial mobilisation with a view to trying to obtain another two or perhaps even 300,000 troops. And they're really desperate for really any type of man they can get their hands on, although they are not apparently going to recruit undergraduates or people from the finance sector or computer specialists. Mm. In other words, the middle class. He does want to touch the middle class. They're based in the big cities like Moscow. They're the ones that could cause him a problem. So what he's trying to do is to go for the peasant class many of whom wouldn't be able to find Ukraine on a map. Mm. So exploiting their knowledge, their lack of awareness of world affairs, and they're the ones who are going to get killed in the coming months. It's been called effectively conscription, what he's kind of launched. Do you know what the feeling is among those classes that are kind of 
ending up being called up? Are they willing? Are they able? I think that a number of people have uh, fled the country so they can get into Finland without a visa and also Georgia. So um, you've got long queues at the border. So you do have a lot of younger Russians who are not already exempted because they're undergraduates, whatever. So you've got a number of younger Russians who are making a dash for the border to get away from being killed in battle. So we can see that some people are voting with their feet. You've probably got some that are really enthusiastic about the war. War really is a great attraction for some young men. So they're probably going into battle and they'll be amongst the first to be killed in the next wave of, Mm. of operations. For me, it's intriguing to look at what it's doing to the domestic political culture of Russia. So Putin has now really caught himself in a sandwich. On the one hand, clearly, you've got people who are opposed to the war and thousands of people have been arrested in anti-war demonstrations inside Russia. But at the other end of the spectrum, he's unleashed these far-right nationalists and they're the ones who are accusing him of being too soft. Oh, goodness. (laughs) And not trying hard enough to take (laughs) over Ukraine. So Putin's problem is he's now put himself into this trap where he's having to negotiate with both ends of the spectrum. In short, he never expected the war to drag on for this long. He looked back at what happened in 2014, 2015, when he took over areas like Crimea. Obama didn't do anything. There was no resistance to that. So he figured, well, look, I'll be able to get more territory because in the meantime, America has become even more consumed Mm. with this toxic culture politics that's going on. The Americans are very introspective. So this would be a good time when their attention is elsewhere to invade Ukraine. Of course, they've just suffered the humiliation of the retreat from Afghanistan. It's very interesting to note that a year ago, the Americans were defeated in Afghanistan, and now they're seen as a leader of the free world. So they're back to where they were. Putin has done wonders (laughs) for Americans standing in the world, at least amongst the more Western-oriented countries, because it's put America back on the front line and America, and quite a few Americans are supportive of Ukraine. Biden has put together an interesting coalition. You've also got, in the United States, a number of opponents Mm -hmm. to the war. You've got some people who are just simply saying, this is not our war, we shouldn't get involved, that's your traditional isolationist approach. And you've got others who are saying, no, we have had a situation where NATO has lulled Russia into a trap, forced Russia to invade Ukraine. This is the John Mearsheimer approach. So he's the realist in terms of politics. So you do have some critics for Biden, but overall he's enjoying good support and at the moment is on the winning side, which is rare for America. (laughs) No, maybe they should enjoy it while it lasts. In terms of the call-up of the reservists, 300,000 was the figure we were given for the initial call-up. What impact will that have on the actual war in Ukraine? Is that going to be kind of a might that Ukraine's going to struggle against? Well, there is a tradition within the Russian military culture, which goes back for centuries, that Russia be controlled by the communists or the czarists or now Putin. Russia has traditionally always had more troops, more population than all of its surrounding countries. And so its method of fighting, which really hasn't changed very much from one century to another, is to behave like a steamroller. So if you go back to World War I, where well over a century ago, the Germans were realising they were going to have to fight a war on two fronts, the Western Front, the Eastern Front. So their plan, the von Schifflin plan, 
required Germany to attack quickly through the Low Countries, knock out France, and get all that sorted out before the Russian steamroller started to grind its way towards the West mm-hmm. and grind over the top of Germany. And so even over 100 years ago with very different political classes, etc., there was still this model of the Russian steamroller. And that's basically what we're still talking about today, that the Russians hoped about a win by sheer force of numbers mm. and have this steamroller run over the top of Ukraine. They've done it for centuries in the past. The problem, I think, this time is that the balance of warfare has changed. But warfare moves back and forth. Sometimes it pays to be a defender, such as the days of the Welsh longbowmen uh, taking on the French knights. So you had these French knights with all their armour and their horses, etc. But their vulnerability was being shot Mm-hmm. or better still, shooting the horse. Because if the knight fell off the horse, the dead horse, Where did the knight go? was finished, yeah. <laughs> then you just run and captured him and ransomed him back to the peasants. <laughs> so, you know, there were times when it paid to be in defence and then, as we saw in World War Two, it paid to be inside tanks, moving quickly in this sort of blitz warfare, quick warfare. The pendulum of warfare moves back and forth. And I think at the moment it has moved in favour of people who are doing the defending. And we've seen that in Ukraine with the weaponry that they've got now, a much smaller population, 40 million versus about 144 million. But they've been able to put up such a good defensive measure because of all the new technology. And so this is also counting against Russia. Russia's offensive technique, the steamroller, works in certain eras. I don't think it's working so well today. Yeah, well, I was going to bring up as well the fact that Ukraine had claimed back some territories. Could you tell us about those developments? Yeah, so these are the territories. Uh, so going back to February 24, so Russia thought that they could take over all of Ukraine fairly quickly. It failed with its initiatives aimed towards the capital city, Kiev, but they were able to move over the Russian border into Ukraine. So we're talking about the eastern strip of Ukraine and a bit of the southern side of Ukraine, which is the area which is more easily serviced by Russia itself. Now, what has happened is that certain areas have certainly fallen under Russian control and war crimes have been committed, which will make a negotiated peace very difficult because of all the extensive Russian war crimes that have been committed. So Ukraine is really looking for total defeat of Russia. And what Ukraine is able to do is to nibble away at some of the territories which the Russians have claimed. So uh, Lyman, for example, has now been pretty well liberated by Ukraine. Kherson has been well on the way to being liberated. So the Ukrainians have put up a, a very good fight and the Russians have shown themselves to be vulnerable because of their supply problems and that they can't move troops around. It's almost as though they've paid no attention to some of the changes that we've seen in warfare in recent decades. And they're just using the old rule book. Well, it worked all right for the czars. It'll work all right for us. (laughs) You are listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. And this week we are discussing the current state of the war in Ukraine. Keith, we've heard from Vladimir Putin, not just about calling up the reservist troops, but also with a new message for the West. What's he said? Yeah, so the threat to the West now, as I say, the narrative has now changed. So originally this was an action against Ukraine. Now Putin sees Russia as being under threat from the West. 
And so he's now seeing this as a almost a battle of civilizations between Russia versus the West. This is not what some of his immediate allies wanted. For example, at the beginning of the year at the Winter Olympics, he spoke to President Xi and reassured him that the operation would be over quickly. Well, here we are months later and it's not. So we know the Chinese are not very happy mm. with this uh, disaster by Putin. And I think also the Chinese will be unhappy about making it an even bigger conflict by seeking to take on the rest of the West because from China's point of view, China needs the West as a, as a market for goods. And China's in a very bad situation. It's interesting that its rate of economic growth is now less than that of the rest of Asia, yeah, which right. is the first time in 40 years. So there's the impact of COVID. There's the impact of the drought, including some of its rivers drying up so they can't move goods through rivers because they're just mud banks now. Goodness. So China is in a very bad situation, along with, of course, the property bubble and all sorts of things. China really doesn't need a war in Ukraine. What it wants is everybody to be friendly and, and trading with each other and buying Chinese goods. Fair enough. There's also been the whole issue, and we touched on it a little bit before, with Russia annexing claimed territories in Ukraine. I mean, what does that mean? How did Putin go about doing that? And then what's the result for Ukraine? What Putin did was just simply make a declaration, very, very grand ceremony on television. Uh, but you've got to hand it to the Russians. They know how to make the most of their oh, architecture yeah. <laughs> and, and colour and all the rest of it. But he just simply made that declaration. Mm. Um, it's not a declaration that's going to be recognised by other governments, so it has no standing in international law. As I say, the Chinese are apprehensive about the way this conflict is dragging on. Really, for all practical purposes, it'll be ignored. Now, what does it mean for Ukraine? Well, the, the problem is that if Ukraine continues to liberate those areas, then Putin will be able to argue to his citizens, it is Russia that is now being attacked mm. because of what goes on in Donetsk or Luhansk. So there is that risk. Uh, whether he'd be wanting to play that card, of course, is another matter, but that certainly is a risk. Something else I saw this week was there were uh, Russian tanks moving through a section that commentators were saying it could be a show of nuclear force. Do mm. you have any further information on that? No, I haven't, but we are very worried about the nuclear issue. Mm. In other words, Putin is now threatening to use nuclear weapons. I have difficulty seeing where you would do it. One would be to fire a nuclear weapon, say, into the North Sea mm -hmm. without damaging anybody, just to show I am serious about nuclear weapons. And the second one would be to actually use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine. The problem with that is Ukraine is right besides Russia. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the radioactivity will be blown into Russia, perhaps. Yeah. So it's very difficult to see how you'd actually use the nuclear weapons. The other problem is that if a nuclear weapon is ever used, there'll be pressure on the Americans to reply in force. Do they have any, I know with NATO, you know, they've vowed, well, they're part of NATO, obviously, but in terms of if there were nuclear weapons used, is there a precedence that the US would feel compelled to respond if that happened? You have to do so because of the theory mm. of mutual assured destruction. So under MAD, mutual assured destruction, both sides promise each other that if there were an attack, they would retaliate. So the Americans are obliged, mm. or the British for that matter, or the French, would be obliged to retaliate, depending on, on where the nuclear strike occurred. But to maintain the credibility of the nuclear deterrence, you have to use it. You've got no choice. Yeah, well, that's a worry. It's not something we want to see happening, is it? 
Now, looking ahead, some are theorising these recent developments could spell uh, an impending collapse of Putin's Russia. Do you think that's possible? So It is certainly possible. Okay. I think that behind closed doors in Washington, D.C., there is this feeling that if you take a long-term view of global politics, America has got two major problems. Leaving aside the whole Islamic stuff, which was a detour for 20 years mm. and got him into all sorts of problems in Iraq and Afghanistan, the two big problems are... China and Russia. In recent years, the attention has been focused on China and the showdown that there will be with China. China at the moment doesn't want to have such a showdown. It hasn't readied itself fully for that showdown. The other one, of course, is Russia. And I think a number of people behind closed doors, I say, because this is regime change, which you're not supposed to talk about in public. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that there will be some people in America who say, look, we're destined to have a war with Russia at some point. Let's just get it over and done with and let, let's choose this time. And perhaps the way to do it rather than a head-on collision is just to continue to bleed Russia dry and then see what happens inside Russia. We talk about Russia, but in fact it's a federation of nationalities, the most important of which is Russia. But you've got a lot of other, you've got the Tartars there, for example, you've got a whole variety of minority populations, many of which don't really like being ruled from Moscow. You know, if you're in Siberia, for example, you're 10 or 11 time zones away. It's a different world. Mm. So, you know, you wouldn't mind being independent of Moscow, particularly now with climate change, because suddenly the resources which are permanently frozen are now more accessible to drilling. So from a Siberian point of view, if the western side of Russia starts to fall apart around Moscow, this might be an opportunity to seek their own liberation. And so you can imagine that there'd be some people... In, in the back rooms in Washington, D.C., saying, let's see if we can get Russia to break up, My, which I think is probably a good idea. My worry, though, is who gets the nuclear weapons? Mm -hmm. That's the risk that we've got to confront. Who gets the nuclear weapons if the country breaks up? Now, luckily, when the Soviet Union broke up, the countries that still had nuclear weapons from Russia deployed on their territory were willing to surrender them. So that's good news. But my guess is that if Russia breaks up, those Russian nuclear weapons will be available for the local nationalities to simply grab hold of. So that's going to be a real problem. Having invented nuclear weapons, you can't disinvent them. <laughs> it's a bit it's like light. the longbow, right? Yes. Um, the longbow has not been disinvented. It was a magnificent tool used by the Welsh 700 years ago, mm -hmm. but it was never disinvented. It was simply replaced by revolvers and muskets, etc. I don't want to think of what could happen <laughs> exactly. with nuclear weapons, my goodness. So that's our problem. We can't yeah. disinvent nuclear weapons. So all we can do is to look forward to the next weapon system coming along, which, of course, will be even worse. Yeah, great. <laughs> um, and just to wrap us up briefly, what do you see happening over the next six to 12 months with the conflict? Well, General Mike Millay of the United States has said that this is a conflict that could run on for months, if not years. We were all shocked when he made that statement a few months ago. But I've got to say, so far, he's turned out to be correct. It has dragged on for a lot longer than people were predicting. It's going to take decades for Ukraine to recover. It's going to take decades to rebuild Ukraine because the amount of destruction that's mm -hmm. been inflicted, particularly on the eastern side of it. So we will be haunted by this war for years to come. And, of course, Russia itself has also been badly damaged by the war because of sanctions and its loss of standing as a trusted partner. Who'd want to have any economic deals at the moment with Russia? Not oh, even well. the Chinese are that happy. <laughs> 
Well, as always, Keith, one of those things, we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Absolutely. Thanks for your time. Global Truths is presented by Dr. Keith Suda and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nikolic. Listener.